Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 103 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning. It is December 11th. I am Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Katie, bar the door. You're lowering the bar for the puns on this podcast. I mean, we have a bar. We have to review the bar. We have, we have to, we have bar. Maybe there's a bar journal. As you can see, we've been trying to figure out how to use Bill Barr's name in the title of this podcast. Uh, I'm thinking a uh, time for the bar exam. Mm. Study studying for the bar exam. Um, at the bar. You know, there are a lot of possibilities here. Yeah, well, uh, maybe we'll debar ourselves from ooh, making bar puns ooh, throughout the rest this of this episode. This podcast should be disbarred. This, hey, this podcast should be disbarred, B-A-R-R-E-D. I think that is the clubhouse leader for the episode. Writing it down. Um, <laughs> so so today, in, in our run of show, I think... As the, you can yeah. see, there's lots of breaking news that's really got our attention today. <laughs> really focused. I think we're going to spend maybe the bulk of our analytic time talking about uh, things that uh, Bill Barr has said or written in the past that shed light on what his views might be on issues that matter to our show, um, issues of executive power primarily. And uh, it'll be kind of fun to dig through some of the sources because he has a substantial record. And I don't make any claim to have done anything by way of comprehensive research. But we found a few things. Uh, we've, we've looked through his oral comprehensive history. Comprehensive research is so not our of. <laughs> not in this setting. In other setting, it's very much our of. Um, in some settings, it's our of. By the way, can you, I can't spell of. O-E-U-V-R-E. Mm, that's a good Oof. word. Mm, you've raised the bar. Uh, sorry. Um, what else we got to talk about? We've got. Uh, we're going to mention by way of reminding people that there still are Gitmo detainees. Huh? And yeah, no kidding. True fact. Hashtag true fact. There are still Gitmo detainees. Some of them are still litigating. Uh, in this case, a successive habeas claim, and we'll talk about a filing in the Supreme Court. Ooh, a new cert petition. Yes, a cert petition in that, Al- I, that I have Alley. nothing to do with. I find that hard to believe. It's, it's rare, but here's here's a national security related cert petition that I just have no relationship to. Well, that's probably good because I'm definitely going to predict this one is not going to be accepted. Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll talk about the Alawi case, if if only to remind people that there is still uh, detention law being developed, and there are still forty guys at Guantanamo, at least what twenty six of whom have nothing to do with the military commissions. Uh, that's right. We've got a two track system, and and you know I think you and I take it for granted year in and year out new students arrive we take it for granted because we've spent you yeah. know better part of two decades dwelling in the details of this we've got increasing numbers coming in who uh you know stories about gitmo headlines about gitmo whether courts can engage in reviewing those cases etc um that's actually a mystery to a lot of these students these days yeah it's interesting you and i are both teaching different versions of national security law classes next semester. Yeah, have you're, a quick note on that. You're, you're teaching a, a more sort of intelligence operation and surveillance heavy course, and I'm teaching a more military detention, treatment, and trial heavy course. Um, I'll be really interested to see, you know, the students who we, who we each have in the spring, like how much this is like tangible to them and how much this is like historical we should we should have scheduled these at the exact same time side by side in those two rooms on the on the main floor in towns and just like compare enrollments <laughs> okay i think i get totally that, crushed that would defeat the whole purpose i of, know of i know doing it this way where students could somehow if they wanted to be stupid enough to choose to take both of us I actually that's something we can find out how many how many dual Indeed. enrollments do we have Hopefully well and, and you know i mean it was it was creepy you and i are for you know the the first year i was here right we co-taught 
uh, the counterterrorism law, the, the sort of related. It was to the like podcast. a four credit version of the podcast. And, and what's funny about that is, is that I didn't realize this until the end of the semester. The students actually evaluated us separately. Oh yeah, I don't think we've ever gone back and. I, I, I think I did know. see it at first, and it was basically pretty comparable. Ah. Um, but neither of us is good as we normally are. <laughs> I think this we format, bring each other down. This it is possible that the dialogue <laughs> format where we get excited and go off on our tangents is not necessarily conducive to pedagogical. Maybe success. it's not exactly the Socratic method. Yeah. Uh, but it was a fun semester, uh, and you know I look back at when we both used to teach this the consolidated survey version of national security law, where somehow one would talk about detention, targeting, prosecution, war powers, international law, the UN Charter, surveillance, covered operations, uh, leaks, First Amendment issues. All in one semester. How the hell did that happen? Uh, that should be like a 12-credit course. Well, it's funny. So we're, we're actually starting to, to make our plans for the next editions of the Stephen Dykus et al. National Security Law, Counterterrorism Law Casebooks. Yeah. And, you know, just the amount of stuff that's changed since the last editions in 2016. I'm curious whether you guys... So in the heyday from, say, 2004 to 16, when, when we think national security law and we thought uh, war on terrorism issues, it made tons of sense that you guys carved off the terrorism law specific yeah. like smaller book yeah. off the big book I wonder if that do you think you'll continue that in the future I don't know I mean I think we'll see how things develop you know the one of the things that's interesting is is some of the chapters that are unique to the counterterrorism book are go very deeply into the land of terrorism financing mm-hmm. and um, efforts by governments to interdict terrorism yeah. financing and I feel like that area is only going to get more and more uh, complex and doctrinally sophisticated as we see, you know, I mean, we've talked before about um, lawsuits under the state sponsor of terrorism exception of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the Anti-Terrorism Act. I mean, that kind of stuff I think is only going to proliferate um, in the coming years. I think it's totally right. And, you know, last week or the week before, we talked about some treasury sanctions that were specific to cryptocurrency movements. Um, And there is just a lot of complexity there and and therefore a lot of legal work to be done. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the... The tricky part, as you alluded to, is it is just no longer possible to teach a meaningful one-semester course that's just called National Security Law. You've really got to pick some subset yeah. of the topics. And, you know, our hope is that the books provide adopters with enough material to sort of build your own, you know, build, choose your own adventure. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. Well, um, so our run of show is basically this. We will talk about some more good old classic war on terrorism detention issues. And we'll also note uh, some stuff going on in Somalia involving airstrikes. So sort of a traditional GWAT type opening segment. Uh, then we'll pivot over and we'll we'll do a survey of, of glimpses into the mind of Bill Barr on issues that will uh, be pertinent for us, for the person who seems very likely to be confirmed as the next attorney general. Uh, then we can check in briefly with uh, the Treasury Department. Speaking of, of sanctions, we'll, we'll note some recent North Korea sanctions. We'll note a few uh, Justice Department developments, some terrorism stuff, some uh, some Huawei stuff. And then uh, we'll have a fun frivolity. This is a suggestion um, yeah. from a, a listener who said, hey, guys talk about films all the time. What about foreign films? Yeah, indeed. We yeah. Will, we, yeah, we will talk about foreign films. Da. See? Uh, ta-da. There you got me. All right. Um, all right. <laughs> we. Uh, That's y- it. I'm out. See. Ciao. All right. Um, Hi. <laughs> so let's talk about the fact that there is still Gitmo litigation going on. You noted a moment what? ago, Steve. You said uh, 
you drew the distinction between military commission prosecutions and military detention as such. And this is always, we've done this before on the show, but it's always a good place to start uh, whenever reapproaching this topic. We must always remind ourselves that when we talk about Guantanamo, yeah, that's kind of a label, an icon that stands in for a lot of different things in people's minds. From a legal perspective, there's two very different systems going on down there that both involve incarceration. One is prosecution for allegations of criminal conduct. That's the military commission system. But never lose sight of the fact, dear listeners, that we do, of course, have this baseline model of military detention under color of the laws of armed conflict on the theory that there is an ongoing armed conflict and that pursuant to that armed conflict, the traditional incidents of fighting a war are available, including detaining the members of the enemy forces for such time as the conflict continues. And though the media doesn't talk about it as much, we still do, but a lot of people don't anymore. The, the, certainly the U.S. government claims we are still in an armed conflict with al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and their associated forces. So we've got, what, uh, 20... 20 what, I, so it's interesting. I mean, there, so there are, there are definitely 10 detainees who are clearly in the military commission system. There are potential charges that are going to be referred I think against three or four more detainees. We're not sure if it's three or four. And I think that's part of why we're not sure if it's 26 or 27. Okay. but So the bulk of detainees who remain, <laughs> the final 40 at Gitmo, are there under color of the law of armed conflict detention model. Not any kind of prosecution system, but simply the idea of detaining the enemy fighters during the war. And, and part of why that's relevant, and also I think part of why this has largely disappeared from public discussion, is because for better or for worse, and I think you and I differ to some degree on the details, the law with regard to those 26, that is to say the law governing the non-military commission detention side of Guantanamo, is actually fairly stable, um, right? That we don't have the kinds of weekly um, kerfuffles yeah. um, that are creating new awkward legal problems in the military commissions when it comes to the pure detention context, that for better or for worse, thanks to a series of decisions by the D.C. Circuit in 2009, 2010, 2011, and then Congress's ratification of some of those decisions in the fiscal year 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, there's not a lot of new law to be made when it comes to the current detainee population. Right, which is a legacy population characterized by the fact that they, by and large, trace back to that early post-9-11 period where the players on the board were core original al-Qaeda, core original Afghan Taliban, and then various other groups that were in their milieu in uh, the AFPAC region. But but what it doesn't include are, say, al-Shabaab members or AQIM members right. or AQAP members or Islamic State members. Right, that's just never been part of the Guantanamo. And, yeah, all the stuff in the past, yeah, all the stuff that's been central to the past five or six years of counterterrorism in the armed conflict setting has no involvement in Gitmo because because no no detainees have been brought in there for so long. Right. So it's kind of this interesting over a decade now. It's stable as a legacy matter, absolutely legally speaking. In, in with one exception. Yeah, which, right, which is which is what all this litigation is about. Exactly. So it's stable in terms of what the original grounds original, for detaining exactly. them were. And the only question that remains is, at, at what point does the court system, if not the executive branch, then the court system decide 
All right, well, the circumstances no longer constitute a sufficient degree of armed conflict such that the traditional detention model applies. That was the possibility famously flagged by Justice O'Connor in her Hamdi plurality opinion. And or it's that the this basis. understanding, quote, may unravel, unquote. Yes, unravel, which perfectly captures this idea. Like right now, we're stitching together an idea that the traditional law of war detention Ooh, model applies. I like that stitching. Thank you. And, uh, and that evolving facts on the ground plainly might uh, unravel and the court was flagging the possibility that even if the executive branch isn't willing to recognize that at some point through habeas the courts might be so Moath al-Awi who's a Yemeni citizen but who's basically from Saudi Arabia in terms of where he grew up and lived before he went abroad which we'll get to in a moment um, he's one of these detainees he lost his first wave Gitmo uh, habeas petition and we'll say something about that in a moment now he's <laughs> arguing primarily that Things have changed. It's been 17 years. Surely we've reached the unraveling point now. So uh, the, he, as I mentioned, he had a first wave habeas petition where he challenged directly the, the sufficiency of the government's evidence against him. Uh, the evidence against him was, as I understand it, primarily his own interrogation statement. So for a lot of people, um, that's not going to uh, cut ice, but it cut ice for the district court and the D.C. Circuit. So back in uh, I guess it was 2008 and, and I think into 2011, his district court determination and then an affirming D.C. Circuit ruling by Judge Garland uh, found that there was ample evidence that what had actually happened with him was he had gone to Pakistan and then on to Afghanistan to join the Taliban to fight against the Northern Alliance as part of the effort to establish, uh, well, for want of a better phrase, I'll describe as an Islamic state uh, in Afghanistan. Um, and the, the record recounts staying at various guest houses associated with Al Qaeda, ultimately fighting and being part of, or fighting with and being part of a unit. Uh, that was part of the conventional forces in Afghanistan, this unit commanded by an al-Qaeda commander, that this was his sort of situation through the U.S. intervention. But then once U.S. airstrikes began, everything broke up, and he was among those who fled into Pakistan where he was seized. Now, his account is that he was not involved in the fighting, that he was seized only because the U.S. was handing out big cash bounties for the capture of any Arab males who might show up in Pakistan. Um, Whatever the whatever the truth of the matter, the fact is that the district court found the government proved it by a preponderance of the evidence, and the D.C. Circuit, I think uh, uh, Garland's phrase was, it is plain to us that he was part of either al-Qaeda or the Taliban, whichever way you want to categorize that. So that was then. Fast forward to more recent times, he renewed his litigation, brought a second successive habeas petition, this time on the grounds that there were new facts, the new facts that were relevant being... I think the trigger was when Obama said that uh, major combat operations or just combat operations in Afghanistan were over, which I think quite predictably set off the idea that, whoa, if, if combat operations in Afghanistan are over, that sounds like things have unraveled. So not just not just what Obama said, but the bilateral security agreement that the U.S. entered into with Afghanistan in 2014, you know, that, that there were meaningful, maybe not dispositive. Yeah. There were some formalisms he could point to for exactly. sure exactly. Uh, that, that were in part designed to suggest normalization and a return to normalcy. But the problem that always overhung his case was th you get away from the formalism and you look at the facts on the ground, the literal facts on the ground, the combat operations, uh, the facts surrounding them. I think it was just last week there was a big headline about uh, a huge airstrike that uh, took out the Taliban shadow governor of Helmand. Uh, U.S. combat operations in Afghanistan 
had dipped for sure around the time that this this litigation started up again. But there's no question they've been surging over the past couple of, I guess, year and a half. This year has been characterized by a substantial increase, as I understand it, although it's increasingly difficult to get particulars about what the uh, number of airstrikes and so forth are. But everyone seems to agree that uh, our combat role in Afghanistan has been increasing. It is, Steve, I think, just utterly inconceivable that the Supreme Court's going to intervene, especially when the headlines are, insofar as there are headlines on this, are referring to the possibility of event- of U.S. withdrawal, a negotiated settlement with the Taliban. The courts are not going to intervene and declare that the actual legal foundation for us fighting there has unraveled. I just don't think there's any chance of it. I think these are interesting academic arguments, and I don't blame him for seeking cert, but I would say it is a hundred percent chance cert will not be granted yeah i mean i'll, I'll say 99.99 just because you never know <laughs> you never but, know but no i mean i think i think that's right now i i don't think I, I i linda greenhouse wrote wrote a piece a couple of years ago in the new york times about how the supreme court had guantanamo fatigue mm-hmm. um and i think that that's true to a point i mean the court quite controversially i think um stayed out of all of those major D.C. Circuit decisions yep. back from 2009, 2010, 2011, when I think there were some pretty compelling arguments, at least in some of them, for the court to step in and clarify. Um, in the years since, I mean, Justice Breyer has written separately about how he doesn't think the court has actually resolved all that much about the scope of the AUMF, the 2001 statute mm-hmm. under which this detention authority is is largely you know, governed. Um a couple of the D.C. Circuit judges have questioned whether that court's detention jurisprudence is faithful to Hamdi and Boumediene. I mean, Judge Edwards, I think in particular, in one concurring opinion, suggested that the court had turned those cases into basically empty, you know, em- em- empty shells. But I don't think this case, I mean, as sympathetic as I am to the arguments that I'll always make in, these aren't the circumstances that are going to impel the court to take a Guantanamo case for the first time in, in you know, not 10 years, but eight years. I mean, they took the Uyghur case and then dumped it when there was a, yeah. an accommodation. I could imagine circumstances that might. I mean, I think a, a more dramatic change in what's true on the ground in Afghanistan. Right, which, as we said a moment ago, could be in the offing over the next year. Yep. I, I'm a little skeptical we'll manage it, but there's at least talk from Madison and others about how yep. may, you know maybe it's time to get out. But also, I mean, so so the D.C. Circuit in al case didn't reach what to me was the most interesting challenge, that even if the government had detention authority at the outset, there are due process constraints on indefinite detention. They said he waived it. They said he, he uh, uh, forfeited it by failing to preserve it uh, in the district court. And I think, you know, if you had a case that properly presented that question um, and where maybe the D.C. Circuit either divides or at least there's some disagreement, not about the result, but about the reasoning, you know, maybe the court yeah. would step back in. I mean, I we know we know Justice Kavanaugh is interested in these issues. I mean, I think we know Justice Breyer is looking for a case mm-hmm. to take. But I've always thought that back to where you started this conversation, the court's Guantanamo fatigue is very habeas specific. And that if and when the time comes for the court to step in with regard to the military commissions, oh yeah, um, yeah. that's going to be a totally different conversation. Completely agreed. Um, I think that the precipitating events that would ever get the Supreme Court back involved in Gitmo detention as opposed to military commissions would be A, if we actually did withdraw from Afghanistan, mm-hmm. because then this idea of the unraveling is presented quite squarely. And then you'd have really interesting questions that the courts have never had to address about whether you can cobble together the 
other locations of combat operations around the globe, one of which we'll talk about in a moment, and, and show that, well, okay, so we're out of Afghanistan, we're no longer using force there, but look what we're doing in all these other theaters. That's a really interesting question that, that we have no jurisprudence on. Right, or if the government loses one of these cases below, and it's the government asking. I mean, we've, I, right. I've mentioned this statistic before. Since September 11th, there has not been a single cert petition that the government has filed in a case with even sort of peripheral national security undertones that the court has denied. Yeah. Um, Another thing that would set it off would be if, after all this time, uh, the Trump administration does finally yep. bring in a new detainee to Guantanamo, yep. uh, which of Ra- course raising is, something that hasn't been resolved by prior jurisprudence. Well, like, I just think that the, the whole idea that like, yep. oh wait, that's we're, this isn't just legacy. Yeah. We're going to have new people in. Yep. In that case, not only would that person by definition present a novel fact pattern that doesn't obviously fit within the uh, existing precedents, but it would just sort of signal that you can't just treat this as sort of a, a small, increasingly historic issue. Well, and this goes back to a fight that I've had with a lot of people. I mean, so. I am I am somewhere in the middle on the Supreme Court's legacy vis-a-vis Guantanamo. I think there are a lot of folks who are quite bitter that the court didn't follow up on Boumediene and the 2008 decision with a series of subsequent decisions fleshing out the more sort of fine-grained substantive and procedural rules. I actually think that at least from Justice Kennedy's perspective, he got exactly what he wanted, which is not necessarily specific substantive results in these cases, but just law that was ultimately going to be up to the courts as opposed to the political branches. And so he wasn't nearly as concerned by what the answers were to these questions, as maybe you or I are, as the fact that the courts were the ones answering them, even if it was the lower courts and not the Supreme Court itself. I think that's, I, I largely agree with that. I would just add that I think he feels, and I think he was correct to feel, that the existence of judicial review, whatever the particulars turned out to be, the genuine existence of judicial review would cast a shadow that would inflect the course of these detention, which it has. It, the people who are unhappy about it are unhappy that it hasn't inflected it more. That's right. That's right. But it definitely has had a, an effect. No, that's right. I mean, I think folks who think that it hasn't had an impact, I think, just don't don't know what they're talking they're, about. The government did not win all those cases. Well, but more the point. I mean, it's it's the it's. It's not just the cases that went to court. It's how the specter of litigation right. dramatically changed just the entire yeah. approach the yeah. government took to Guantanamo. I don't believe for a second that there would there has not been a new detainee at Guantanamo since then. Yeah. And I don't believe for a second that would have been the case. If the court had said the court should stay out. Court had to stay I, out. I completely yeah. agree with that. So, yeah. so I don't think Al Alwi is going to be the next time the Supreme Court takes a Guantanamo case, but I don't think that we've heard the last from the Supreme Court about Guantanamo. Concur. All right, so I mentioned a moment ago that there are other locations around the world where combat operations are underway. <coughs> One of these is Somalia, and, and, it, and again, it just, it's striking how little uh, mainstream media attention this gets. Um, there are periodic significant U.S. airstrikes in Somalia, and this set off uh, sort of a, a really a, a cute and funny exchange on Twitter yesterday. And so um, my friends, uh, Beck and Elvina, I just have to highlight this because I got such a kick out of it. And here's, here's the background. So... Prior to late 2016, there were definitely periodic U.S. airstrikes against al-Shabaab-related targets in Somalia. But two things were true. One, the government had never once publicly stated that al-Shabaab organizationally was fully within the scope of the AUMF as an associated force. This was widely talked about. It was widely speculated about. But they weren't on the list. And every time there was an airstrike uh, for many years in, in Somalia, there was there was care taken to describe the particular individual who was the target 
either as individually associated with Al-Qaeda, as opposed to just being a member of Al-Shabaab, but individually having the tie to the AMF, and or some kind of self-defense type theory. Uh, secondly, Somalia was on the Obama administration's list of places where we were using force, but it was not deemed an area of active uh, hostilities. Uh, and, and that meant that the presidential policy guidance, which imposed as a matter of policy, various additional constraints about the degree of certainty you have about the threat this person poses, the, the degree of certainty you have about there being no risk of collateral damage, those sorts of constraints were applicable there, at least in theory. Now, um, during that time period, sort of the second term of Obama, there were a number of airstrikes which precipitated lots of comment by, by people like uh, me, Beck Ingber, Elvina Puthalet, um, all of us commenting on the way that the government would put out language describing the domestic and or international law justifications for the strike. And we, we all noted that frequently the phrase uh, uh, self-defense was coming up in context where we were defending, U.S. forces seemed to be defending uh, AMISOM or, or local uh, allied forces or Somali government forces, and therefore striking striking a, an al-Shabaab target that otherwise didn't seem to fit the PPG model. The, and, and in language that, it was the language of UN Charter, USAD Bellum, collective self-defense under Article 51, but it was being applied in what felt more like either a domestic law or even a doctrinal context that was sort of borrowing the phrase. And the whole thing just excited a lot of conversation and suggested there was a little bit of blurring of the lines going on. Now, what's happened since then? First, the late Obama administration actually uh, did something kind of remarkable that got relatively little attention at the time. They decided to formally and publicly state that al-Shabaab was indeed an associated force within the scope of the AUMF. Secondly, in the early Trump administration, they categorized Somalia as an area of active hostilities such that whatever was to remain of the PPG rules, and they were ultimately modified a bit, not as much as people expected, but somewhat, um, were irrelevant. It was sort of shifted in the same categories, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. And um, at that point, what follows is that there's no particular need to offer legal justifications about unit self-defense, allied or collective self-defense. You could simply say, we claim we're in an armed conflict with al-Qaeda's associated forces. We've asserted that al-Shabaab is such a force, and the targets were armed members of al-Shabaab. Therefore, they were targetable at any time, subject to the rules of the laws of armed conflict and any policy and ROE that might govern. Um, but what's funny is that that's not really what the statements tend to say. So when CENTCOM, I'm sorry, when AFRICOM uh, talks about these sorts of things and there's a press release, we are still getting the language of unit or collective self-defense from time to time. And there was an example of this just a couple of days ago. Uh, and and uh, that led to some funny exchanges between Beck and Alvina, where at one point Beck very jokingly uh, said, you know, th this is a, uh, she had a kind of a mashup of the terminology of, of Usad Bellum and Usin Bello, and and it but was didn't make clear in the context that this was meant to be a joke, and so they had a back and forth for a while that led uh, Beck to have to say like I was just kidding, I was just kidding, but it does just kind of go to show you there's a there's a large uh, tendency to use language that are borrowed from one area and another area in these press releases. Uh -huh. And when that's all we've got to go on to assess what the evolving legal architecture is, it's going to lead to confusion. Now, in this case, no one was really confused. You've got a bunch of experts who are kind of having fun with it and joking about it. Um, but what about the journalists, right? right. And, what about, and what about the JAGs who are trying to read the tea leaves? So I think that's a bit of a problem, but we've probably beat a dead horse here. So why don't we move on to a much more interesting topic? We've got 
uh, a prospective nominee here to be the new attorney general. Bill Barr. Bar- barring some disaster. Bar- bar- barring unforeseen eventualities, he'll be again for the second time attorney general. And, and therefore the nation's chief officer before the bar. Oh my God! We could do this all day. Really uh, it seems like we are doing it all day. Indeed. We'll pick up the pace here by uh, surveying some things that we know from Bill Barr's uh, prior service and statements, uh, his views on executive power. D- Steve, do you have a preference on how we do this? I mean, no. there's a million different ways to jump in. I, mean, I think the short version is that like it's hard to think of someone who simultaneously is as well qualified to be the attorney general and holds as solidly conservative and I don't want to say extreme Bobby, but certainly um, strong um, executive power views, right? That, that it's, it's, it's sort of a, a double, a double, uh, a, a double future. I would say he's, he is pretty much in the mainstream of, of Republican executive branch attorney general type lawyers. And in this case, literally an attorney general, but when you go through people who are, uh, Frankly, it's not just Republicans either, by the way. The Obama administration, for example, did not lack for people who had robust views of executive power in some of these settings. Yeah. But um, we're talking about the Republican side here. And amongst people who are possible candidates for attorney general, I think most people's reaction was, huh, it's actually an, it, it is an establishment, it's, it's establishment Republican. I, I, would, you know, I would quibble a bit on mainstream. I mean – Mainstream implies that there are people to the to the to the poll, right? And it's not clear to me. I mean, I don't know that there is an executive power question on which Bill Barr doesn't hold whatever the most aggressive view is. And more to the point, I mean, the Attorney General is not just someone with views about executive power. I think on policy matters, I don't think he's necessarily in the middle of the Republican legal establishment. I actually see him pretty far to the right among the Republic, like on you know on. Uh, uh, under undercarceration, as he has talked about, right on criminal law, on drugs, on immigration. It's certainly true that the Republican establishment there there is no monolithic Republican establishment anymore. And what we actually have is what we've really always had, but it's much more clear now. Uh, we have a, we have libertarian wings where uh, a number of libertarian Republicans are certainly horrified by the idea of in- the need for increased incarceration, increased uh, federalization <laughs> of criminal law and that sort of thing. And then you have other Republicans who on the criminal justice side come from a more uh, conservative perspective and have more of the traditional let's have law enforcement model. But let's let's talk about some specific things. Um, I, I dug around and I'm going to give some quotes. You from prepped? Things he said. I prepped a little bit because otherwise I really didn't know this. Damn it, Bobby. Well, I got to have some grist for the mill. And so I'm going to give you some grist for the mill and then we can react to some. These are quotes from things he uh-huh. said or written or um, have been said in interviews by him. So here's, here's we'll start on a, on a happy note. <laughs> 1992 speech uh, quote, and this is, this is Barr talking. The Attorney General's oath to uphold the Constitution raises the question whether his duty lies ultimately with the President who appointed him or more abstractly with the rule of law. I said in my confirmation hearings and have said several times since the Attorney General's ultimate allegiance must be to the rule of law. Um, that's the right answer. Sure. That's good to hear. Uh-huh. Um, and I suppose you might say, well, no one's going to say otherwise. Nope. Um, but nonetheless, that's that's a strong statement of what you'd want to hear. Sure. Um, all right. So now he, he wrote a memo in 1992 in his, his uh, a, attorney general capacity. This is a memo that went around to the other 
agency head lawyers, the, the general counsel's consultative group, what we would today describe as the lawyers group. This is, you know, GC of, you got CIA and Defense Department and so on around the horn. And it, and it was a memo basically titled, uh, I forget the exact title, but something along the lines of Common Congressional Encroachments on Executive Power. And he went around the horn of particular ways in which he feels Congress sometimes can intrude on uh, executive branch authority. And this is something I think actually is is a common concern on both sides of the aisle, whoever's in power, the executive branch lawyers, this is one of their core functions. And one of the things you often hear from them is policing these sorts of boundaries. Um, nothing wrong with it in the abstract, certainly. On the removal power, which is obviously Dun, relevant da, da, da. for the Mueller investigation, here's what he says about Morrison v. Olson. Uh, we recognize that the court upheld restrictions on the executive branch's authority to remove an independent counsel in Morrison v. Olson. Hey, right there, that's more than some conservatives. Well, and he, and he runs. The, he recognizes. He recognizes it, um, and he kind of gives the breakdown of what what Morrison actually said in the particular function. He says the independent counsel was performing a function, prosecution of high-level government officials, where there was perceived to be a conflict of interest within the executive branch. Um, and then he goes on to say. Whether distinguishable or not, the power of the executive branch will be best preserved by vigorous opposition to such restrictions. The way the paragraph read to me was he's saying, look, Morrison allowed what it allowed. Other types of intervention on the removal power are a different case, distinguishable. Now, he does say distinguishable or not, implying that, well, maybe maybe even in that one case, you would still want to treat that as a problem. So I think we don't know for sure whether he's going to accept Morrison. In the Kavanaugh hearings, we saw endless rounds of questions about do you accept Morrison? You know, what do you, how do you feel about it? And how does that apply to the very different context, but not entirely different context, of, of Mueller? Those obviously will be a central bone of contention in uh, Barr's confirmation hearing as well. There's reason here to think that he's you know, probably not a huge fan of the Morrison decision. Uh, he has some language in there that I won't quote to you. Uh, objecting to congressional efforts to limit presidential authority to reorganize within cabinet departments or other executive branch uh, units. Uh, to me, that was super interesting because I think a lot about the NSA Cybercom dual hat. Mm -hmm. And uh, Congress has actually forbade full separation of the dual hat until the Secretary of Defense makes certain written certifications about Cybercom's uh, practical ability to not lose functionality if and when formal separation occurs. Um, I suppose it'd be, I, I would love it. No one else would really care that much, but I would love it if they'd asked during the confirmation hearing, you know, do you think that Congress has the authority to restrict the president's ability to boss around the internal organization of the Defense Department yeah. that way? And and if you don't think they can do it in general, can they at least do it by leveraging the spending power, which is how I understand they did it in yeah. that instance. Yep. Uh, here's another one, executive privilege. Here's here's what he says. This, this, is, this is, by the way, just, just I, I don't want to pull any punches. Executive privilege is going to be the show exactly. next year. I think so. I mean, yeah. removal power as to Mueller obviously could limb large. Headline, but but, right. no, but the, the story, the, the legal conflict of 2019. Yeah. Is That's what be, we're going to do for two years. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, like all of us, not just the show. So he wrote uh, number five on his list, attempts to gain access to sensitive executive branch information. Congress consistently attempts to obtain access to the most sensitive executive branch information. And is, well, you know, that doesn't mean they should always get it, but he says, and is not always receptive to arguments that the executive branch, like Congress and the courts, must enjoy some measure of protection for confidential exchanges of information if it is to function effectively. Uh, he doesn't really, you know, commit to any particular line. So it's a not surprising at all statement by an executive branch lawyer that Congress can't have everything at once. The battle will be over. Where's the line?
on uh, what I often think of as the sole organ power, on the president's foreign affairs power. He, he has a lot to say. He says, since the 1970s, Congress has increasingly attempted to assert itself in the area of foreign affairs at the expense of the authority traditionally exercised by the president. And there's a footnote there um, that goes on and, and talks about various things. It's quite interesting. Um, this authority encompasses the authority to make treaties on such terms as, uh, oh shoot, this uh, footnote is printed funny here. Hard for me to read it. Uh, suffice to say, he recites all these traditional heads of authority. Um, the 1970s, he says, were marked by a rash of congressionally initiated foreign policy legislation limited the president's range of options on a number of foreign policy issues. The thrust was to restrict the president's ability to dispatch troops abroad in a crisis to prescribe his authority in arms sales, trade, human rights, foreign assistance, intelligence operations. Uh, over 150 separate prohibitions and restrictions enacted on executive branch authority to formulate and implement foreign policy. Not only was much of this legislation ill-conceived, if not actually unconstitutional, it has served in a number of instances to be detrimental to the national security and foreign policy interests of the United States, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, it would be good to ask for you know specific instances you know so which which ones do you think are actually unconstitutional uh, if any he didn't say for sure right um, and this is not this is not a judicial confirmation here like this is not I can't answer that question because the case may come before me he's about to be the attorney general he can be pressed yeah. to answer now he does he concludes uh, a lot of what I just read actually he he's quoting from the the, the Tower Commission report. Uh, a John Tower article, actually, not the Tower Commission report, a John Tower article on foreign affairs from 1981. Um, he says, uh, um, basically, I'm going to summarize this. He says, especially problematic are things that would prevent or otherwise inhibit foreign affairs negotiations and discussions. And he gives some examples of things he feels interfere with the ability of the president to be chief diplomat. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that's where the sole organ doctrine is on its strongest grounds. Yeah, I mean, I think the Supreme Court's decision in Zivotofsky too goes a long way toward reinforcing that. Yep. All right, now in war powers, uh -oh. uh, in war powers, I got a couple of things here. One is from Bob Woodward's book, The Commanders, where he's talking about the Panama invasion. Uh, and here's what Woodward That wrote. old chestnut. Deputy Attorney General William Barr said that, quote, the president has full authority to conduct military operations as the commander-in-chief, regardless of whether Congress voted a resolution of support. Close quote. Uh, turning to quasi-constitutional custom, Barr told the president that, quote, the situation most closely resembling the current crisis, this is referring to Panama, was the Korean War, where Truman <laughs> acted without Congress under a United Nations resolution somewhat similar to the current one. Actually, that, that I had thought that was Panama. That actually might be related to Persian Gulf War. But happily, we don't have to rely on Woodward for this. We can rely on Barr's own words because there's a really interesting oral history of his time in the Justice Department uh, posted at the Miller Center's website. That's the, the big center for history at UVA. Miller Center, uh, if you look for William Barr oral histories, you'll find this. And uh, so I'm going to give you some extended quotes from that real quick because it's fascinating. Uh, first, I believe the president did not require any authorization from Congress, and I believe that the president had constitutional authority to launch an attack against the Iraqis, um, so on and so forth. And he goes on to describe how they had a big meeting, and right as they were, as he was heading to the meeting, Senator Cohen, who later on would be Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense, but a Republican senator uh, from Maine, I believe. Yep. So, uh, senator Cohen said, uh, was given this speech saying that if any lawyer ever advised the president that he had the authority uh, to unilaterally attack the Iraqis, then that lawyer would be impeached. 
And I was putting on my jacket listening to this going over the meeting. So I went over to the meeting. It was an out-of-body experience because any constitutional lawyer would love to be asked these questions under these circumstances. Um, blah, blah, kind blah. of like as Marbury rightly decided. There you go. Um, the, exactly like that. The president said, Bill, I've been reading these articles, this op-ed piece the other day. And this is um, President George H.W. Bush, arrest in peace. Uh, president Bush asked him, or says to him, I read this op-ed piece the other day and says I don't have the authority to launch an attack on the Rockies. Uh, what's your view? What's the Justice Department view on whether I have the authority to attack the Iraqis? I'm sort of flattered that he asked a cold question to me without having discussed it with me first because it meant he knew the answer I was going to give him. I said, Mr. President, there's no doubt you have the authority to launch an attack. I explained why I thought he did under the Constitution as Commander-in-Chief, and I gave him some different theories. And after saying he could do it, I gave him a secondary theory, which I was sort of proud of at the time. It was a bootstrap argument. I said, now another reason here, Mr. President, is... Even for the critics who would say that that wasn't true, there's no doubt that you have the authority to put 500,000 troops in the field. Congress authorized, through the approval of the UN, whatever they are, resolutions, and through their authorization and all that stuff, Congress has definitely approved you putting 500,000 troops over there, and of course, insert here, uh, Operation Desert Shield, not yet Desert Storm, uh, to face the Iraqi army. We have intelligence that they have weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons, biological weapons, your job as Commander-in-Chief is to make sure those troops are not preemptively attacked. If you feel as Commander-in-Chief that in order to protect your army in the field, you have to launch first, you absolutely can do that, which I thought was an ingenious argument. And now it goes on. But uh, reactions to that, Steve? So is he wrong about the deployment power, just putting troops into a non-combat situation? As a matter of historical practice, no. I think if we were going back to first principles, which of course we've long since abandoned in the context yeah. of war powers, I might want to relitigate that. But no, as a matter of historical practice, I think that's that's not grossly inaccurate. Now what about, so what he himself characterizes as an ingenious bootstrapping <laughs> argument. Now that you've deployed them, which you clearly can do, since the other side might attack them first, if you can deploy them, you can also then attack anyone who might right. So this attack is I mean, we've talked about this before. I mean, we've talked about preemptive self-defense, like you know, provocation-based preemptive self-defense, and how we don't think you can bootstrap your way into a war that way. The problem is, is that once you've got troops in a foreign theater, not yet a combat theater, where they're close, you know, where they're in close quarters with uh, uh, military forces who may be hostile to them. It's not hard to see how this evolves. Right, so this is the logic. This is the logic uh, inartfully involved in the War Powers Resolution, yep. which tries to get at this and doesn't do it very nope. well. It tries to get at it by saying that if troops are introduced into hostilities or where a situation where hostilities are imminent, yep. and that's that's Congress back in the early seventies trying to get at the idea that if you use your deployment power in not an ordinary situation like a port call or troops deployed in a situation where there's no reason to think they might be attacked, but one where they might be, they're trying to get at exactly this and they're trying to make sure Congress is notified so that I don't know what they're going to do next, but so that the clock starts, all that other war power stuff. Um, but Barr's example kind of illustrates uh, the, you know, the complexities here, right? So he's, he was expressly by his own account uh, arguing for a bootstrapping use of the some, the otherwise innocuous deployment power yeah, but, to try to get at a first strike power. But I mean, the reality is in the 26 years since he wrote that, I mean, practice has evolved so much in line with his arguments that even though I have real problems with them, I think he as attorney general is going to have very little trouble pointing to recent historical practice as historical gloss for this exact kind of backing your way into a war. 
He won't have to, in so far as the uh, military engagements he encounters as the once the the future attorney general don't require once putting substantial. Yeah, he is literally the once in future AG. Um, Insofar as he doesn't have to worry about boots on the ground arguments, making it a real war powers question under the executive branch's theory about when you even have to have these debates, he'll be able to draw heavily on the Obama administration's practices in Libya uh, and, and, and other things we've talked about on this show to argue that you don't even get to this question. But this, is, this discussion is basically an assertion of the, the power to use the full-fledged war powers without congressional authorization, which is a, you know, a, a, I think as you were saying earlier, there are some positions at least on which he doesn't really have anyone to his right. When your position is you can put 500,000 ground combat troops into the field, and if you like, go ahead and start an armed conflict in that way or join an armed conflict we weren't previously part of, uh, Korean War style, um, you're basically taking the most maximalist position of commander-in-chief war powers and the most de minimis position on what the declare war clause actually means and what the founders' intentions are, are worth with, with possible. One, with one exception, right, which is to, ha- to hold all those views about what the president can do without Congress is not necessarily to believe that the president could therefore ignore statutes purporting to constrain that authority. True, that's right. He didn't say anything about that. If, if right. somehow over the president's veto there was a prohibition and on I use actually, of funds, he doesn't say you can't do that. And, and John, actually, you famously says... Well, that's the thing. Right. And so I actually hope... So So there are a couple of lines... I mean, I, I don't... I think it is obviously quite likely that especially in the new Senate, he will be confirmed. But um, the confirmation hearing is an opportunity for senators from both sides of the aisle to get him on the record about things that they would like him to publicly commit to. Um, and I think it would be interesting to hear not just his views on the John Yu commander-in-chief override theory, but on just sort of exactly how much power he thinks Congress may constitutionally exercise in order to constrain what Congress believes to be a wayward executive, whether in the foreign policy space, in the war power space, or even closer to home. So apropos of this question of the commander-in-chief override, let me, let me go back actually to his, his oral history because he actually says some Youngstown stuff here about this issue. Because as you know, uh, ultimately President George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, did go to Congress yep. and, and did get the authorization to fight there. Um, but, so they were debating this after he had offered his legal theory about how the president doesn't need congressional authorization. Uh, Barr said quite rightly that, Mr. President, you would be in a better position, the strongest possible position, if Congress did pass a resolution. Uh, He says, it would not be the law. It wouldn't be a statute authorizing you to do it, but a resolution supporting what you did, which is kind of funny. Um, But he goes on to say, um, well, anyways, he goes on to argue about or recount how he argued for engagement. And then, um, let's see here. I think it's... Dick Cheney said, uh, you're giving him legal, political advice, not legal advice. He said, no, no, I'm giving him both. They're really sort of together when you get to this level. That, that's all right. Um, but here's, listen to this and think about it in Youngstown terms. I think it's better to go up there and engage, to get up there and see if we can head off that kind of resolution and, in fact, get a resolution in support of what we're doing. The president said, well, suppose they pass a resolution saying I cannot do it. What impact does that have? I said, It's irrelevant. It's not, a, it's not a statute. Remember, he's arguing for a resolution. It's not a statute. It's just an expression of opinion. They can't change the Constitution by expressing their opinion on the matter. I would say you could still do it. But I said, I think under Justice Jackson's opinion in Youngstown, if Congress is with you on this and does something supportive, then you're in your strongest possible position. But even if they don't, I think you're okay. So that's, you can read that, I think, two ways. 
One is a not very persuasive reading of what it would mean if the congressional action is in the form of a concurrent resolution. But not t- entirely unsensible either, right? So if it's a concurrent resolution, it's Maybe not a statute. both houses but doesn't have to be presented to the president. Exactly. So a concurrent resolution is not a statute. A joint resolution has the force of law because it's signed by the president. What, what, if it, law. what if it were a concurrent resolution under uh, Section 5C of the War Powers Resolution, right? A termination resolution. Right. No, I, I think not. I think that's a c- concurrent resolution. It's a concurrent resolution. It's not a statute. If the line, if the line, not necessarily, but if it's drawn at... Is there a Congress telling the president they can't do it? Barr has left open the possibility that that would be binding. In fact, he's implied that that might be a real problem. What he said, though, is that a concurrent resolution wouldn't stop you. Now, of course, we know from Youngstown itself that at least in Youngstown, the president can be in the lowest ebb category shy of an affirmative statutory prohibition because there, of course, it was just the omission from a statute that was treated as the negative uh, being expressed by Congress. I think a concurrent resolution would be an even stronger case than that. But Barr is saying, look, in that case, you, you, you would perhaps be in the lowest ebb, but that doesn't mean you lose. And he seems to be strongly implying, in fact, by saying they can't change the Constitution by expressing their opinion, that the president would still win on his very robust view of executive power. This all bears further uh, development in the uh, confirmation hearing, clearly. Hint, hint, Senate, Senate Judiciary yeah. Committee. That said, I don't actually think that full ground deployments are, in the next two years, you know, one hopes, one prays. That's not in our future. Um, I think that what is more likely to come up is the same question that we know from the Trump administration and the Obama administration for the past 10 years has been the, the main thing we've done where we've gone to new places, gone in without a large ground engagement, but we've gone in with air power. And there, all these debates are kind of besides the point because he, it's the Libya example that looms the largest. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I guess, I mean... I understand why we're focused on the war powers. I actually think that perhaps some of the even more important lines of questioning at the upcoming confirmation hearing is going to be more sort of domestically because, you know, I can see situations where Congress might refuse to fund things, um, largely, Bobby, because that's the power the House will have without the Senate, right? The, the, the power the House could exercise without Senate consent is the power to refuse to consent to certain funding. That's right. So you're talking about as applied to various military-related activities? Military-related or domestic, I mean, oh. or domestic. Well, look, if we're talking about, like, what are the important issues, obviously war powers is, like, way down the list compared to these other things that will be the bulk of, of attention. Uh, but I think you, you raise a really good point that I don't think a lot of people are talking about yet. There's a power of initiative on funding matters, an ability to say, to have a veto by refusing to go along with things. If the, if the Democratic House will not support you know, whatever the topic is, uh, they can have their way, not just by issuing subpoenas and conducting oversight, but by doing core things like not funding things. Indeed. Now, this will precipitate what presumably is going to be an epidemic of government shutdown games of chicken yep. and probably more than a few government shutdowns. Yep. Uh, if I were anyone employed by the federal government who depended for my livelihood on my government paycheck and I wasn't in one of the, uh, the, the relatively essential. small yeah, essential positions, I'd be really concerned right now about coming into a two-year period where I'm constantly unsure about uh, that paycheck. Going to be fun. Uh, it's going to be awful. Um, all right. Anything else on? Have, have we raised the bar enough? I think we raised. I think we. Uh, I think we shed light on it. I'm sorry, I ran out of puns there. I actually just said we shed light. That's not even a pun. You're just barred. Thank you. Thank you for rescuing us. Uh, 
I want to get to the frivolity. Let's just note a few other things. Okay. All right. Uh, the Treasury Department has sanctioned three uh, uh, North Korean officials, including uh, the head of the Propaganda and Agitation Department, the head or one of or the <laughs> Minister of State Security, and then um, the above all the Organization and Guidance Department, which in an authoritarian nightmare such as North Korea, as you might imagine, the Organization and Guidance Department, the OGD, is actually one of the most important institutions in the country. What's going on? This is sort of, uh, it's done, it's officially framed as sort of in honor of Otto uh, Warmbier, the 22-year-old college yeah. student who, who they basically murdered. Uh, it took a while for the effect to... Uh, take place, but these are these are sanctions for human rights abuses and censorship abuses and so forth. Continuing a pattern we have remarked on a lot in the show, the Treasury Department is on the job. The right. Treasury Department has continued to function in a normal American foreign policy without sort of without way. like any attention. Um, and it, it doesn't. Yeah, it, it's not ultra flashy, but it's continued to do things as to the Russians and as to the North Koreans that make a lot of sense. But this is a good moment for me to plug one of my favorite humorous Twitter accounts. Uh, do you follow DPRK underscore news? No, I know about it though, and I, I've I've seen a few DPRK underscore news. It's it's excellent. So you got you got any particular examples? I, I don't want to. Well, so the 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 latest tweet was um, uh, about uh, it was it was showing Theresa May's trouble getting out of the car for her meeting with Angela Merkel, um, and here's the tweet: Amid discord and strife, cow voted to leave the farm. Chicken asked, Oh cow, however will you leave the farm if you cannot leave your car? Question mark. <laughs> I am a noted idiot, said Cow. Good lord. <laughs> it's 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 quite entertaining. Comedy gold, even if the stakes are high. Well it's like the onion, where like sometimes it's actually like painfully tr- you know, painful yeah. because it's not funny. Some of the best humor. Yeah. Um, especially these days. Oh, so that's the treasury doings. Uh, on the we national talk security- about Huawei. Oh. Well, yeah, so let's turn our attention to the Justice Department. Uh, first and most, obviously, we're not going to go into any depth here, but we, we are duty-bound to note the extraordinary decision uh, to go after the CFO of Huawei, who's also the founder's daughter. She's detained in Canada. I suspect most listeners already know this. Really? Um, you, you don't think that's... I think... I th- yeah, you know what? That's. I'm sorry, listeners. I, I do yeah. not hold you. I do not have high <laughs> enough expectations right. for you. I, I think that one... That This is right up my alley, so I've definitely... And paying close attention. So, so most listeners, like Bobby, are well aware of this. Maybe, maybe. It'll be interested to know. So if you don't know what we're talking about, definitely go check it out. This is a big deal. She's under arrest in Canada, pending extradition. I think she's almost certainly going to be extradited unless, unless there is some kind of larger deal that goes on. But here's the thing. We see this from time to time in many countries. The, the separation of the overarching national strategies in some particular foreign relationship from the ordinary grinding out of the prosecutorial process. When uh, when Italy, when prosecutors in Italy went after a bunch of CIA agents for uh, the, the rendition uh, that went down in Milan, uh, famously, that was not necessarily what the Berlusconi administration wanted to have happen, but it's what did happen because the prosecution process went that way. It is. I've seen some mixed things in some of the coverage on this. To what extent was the White House even aware that so, this was about so to happen? This is, this is my question. Like, in a normal administration, there is no way that that kind of foreign policy implicating and international economic market implicating yeah. action happens without at least some involvement from the White House because the political and diplomatic ramifications are so latent. Yeah, it's horrifying to think that there wasn't that degree of coordination. But it's deeply but it's deeply believable. It's deeply believable. It's true. It's true. Um, and, and listen, I have, you know, I have no sort of um 
I am not terrified of the specter of a deep state, right? I mean, like I think, you know, there, there's a power to bureaucracy. But here is actually an example where if that's in fact what happened, that's kind of alarming. Well, so I'm not, I wouldn't think of it in deep state terms. I would just think of it in terms of bureaucracy, as you say, yes. that, that if what happened here was sort of the ordinary grinding out, the sort of pursuit by people whose mission is to prosecute these sanctions. By the way, it's sanctions evasion yep. is what this is all about. And, Wait, and, is that a crime? Indeed it is. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, there are Republican senators saying that things are, that are crimes just aren't crimes anymore. Oh, are, are all crimes no longer crimes? I mean, you know, campaign finance crimes, those aren't really crimes. Uh, I think, is it Fletch where we get the yes. great line? Yes. I'm not I'm sure that's a crime anymore. <laughs> I can't remember what happens in Fletch to set that up. Do you remember? I don't, but Fletch is just an, Fletch is an underrated. Movie. So I think maybe our next frivolity will just be sort of a Fletch appreciation. Fletch or, or it's like a Chevy Chase. Oh, yeah. Oh, Great frivolity yeah, topic. Yeah. Just a jet. Well, that might be a multi-episode frivolity if we're going to go through the really the the oeuvre, the milieu the oeuvre. the oeuvre, the yes the. <laughs> All right. Speaking of that, we got to get to the films. But first, let me just note quickly two further uh, Islamic State related cases. Can I, wait, can I ask one more question about the Huawei thing? Oh yeah. yeah. So so imagine a scenario where actually this was carefully coordinated, mm-hmm. and where Which, it could be that right. It was. And imagine President Trump said, "You know, this will give me leverage." Um, in our tariff negotiations with China. Is that, I mean, how do you feel about the specter of using these kinds of unusual... Are we or, stipulating or, that there's she's been indicted, yeah. this is a case that was legitimate, yeah, yeah. And, and the question arises, well, we could get her, she's in Vancouver or wherever she was, right. we could ask the Canadians to grab her, he says, you know, now's a great time to do that. Um, Cause are, you, I, cause are you worried about like reciprocity? I guess is my concern. Sure, no, I I think that if you you certainly we need to be worried about reciprocity because it's the world's a little more multipolar than it used to be, and they have a little more leverage, though not necessarily a lot. I think China has a lot more leverage than it used to have. Yeah, but but maybe not quite so much as yeah. as, uh, as in the, especially in the current circumstance where yeah, we're yeah. already kind of yeah. uh, on the economic battlefield. So I think that it's it's a dangerous zone, but I think that's okay to to have. Larger foreign affairs considerations and larger relationship considerations inform the prosecutorial uh, discretion decision of whether or not to act in this particular instance. In fact, I, as I go through it in my mind, I think that's that's totally fine. But but this goes Uh, back to the point. It would be very different as it was planned. Well, as long as yeah, she was already indicted. This is something that otherwise we should be doing as an enforcement mechanism. But maybe we shouldn't because of larger considerations. But maybe we should because of larger considerations. That's okay. But if he were instead to say, "I'm sick of the Chinese. Let's go after and try to use. Let's try to let's try to gin up a charge." Even there, it's a fuzzy line because what if there really is a crime? Right? Why is it wrong to go after Al Capone for tax evasion? It's not wrong to go after Al Capone for tax evasion. Is it wrong to go after Huawei not for foreign affairs reasons to? Not to go after them for espionage reasons, but to go after them for actual illegal uh, circumvention of sanctions. Um, you know, if you've you've got to be careful with those types of uh, decisions about how to invest prosecutorial resources. That said, when what ends up happening is legitimately, and we're stipulating here, legitimately the discovery of criminal conduct, it's a bit hard. I've, I have a hard time saying that it's somehow, you know, well, you sh- you shouldn't prosecute. All right. Um, I think we said all we can say about serious stuff. Let's talk about things that may be serious, but at least aren't legal or national security related. Foreign films. Foreign films. But maybe they will be national security related. Uh, so actually, I mean, three of my top five, nah, three of my top five are national security related. All right. Should we go? Uh, okay. First of all, so define, we, our we, yeah, define, our, define the category. So, define the category. So I have decided 
um, as just as a as a by fiat to insist that we follow the Oscar criteria for foreign films, which means that the film is predominantly um, in a foreign language and uh, backed by uh, some foreign country. Backed, backed by meaning like, that, I, like some foreign. Well, how about like the director? There's some. There, there's some like I mean I, I I I didn't bother to look up the rule, but there's some requirement that that some foreign country specifically be affiliated with the film because there was a film from Uruguay that was nominated in the 90s, and then Uruguay like disowned the film or disavowed the film, and so it was like stripped of its nomination. Oh, screw that. I, I think we should not include the uh, governmental uh, well, blessing I, factor, I don't th- but I agree with yes. the language factor yes, as, yes. A gr- as a good... So foreign language. Predominantly foreign language. Sorry, British so, and Australians. You make good stuff, but so, you're, just, you're out. So the Minions movie... <laughs> foreign language, not not. Well, not, minion talk. It's like it's like some kind of weird, almost Spanish minion talk is. So by that logic, if there were a Star Trek movie predominantly <laughs> in Klingon, it would qualify. Oh my God! Yes, that would be great. Do you know? You know the whole story. Yeah, how... it has to be. It has to be actual, real Klingon actors. Is that? Yeah, that was there. You go. And a Klingon yeah. director. I mean, so you know the story about how for Star Trek Six, like the the folks who created the Klingon language had deliberately avoided creating a verb to be, and then like Star Trek Six, the whole sort of theme is Hamlet, um, right, and the undiscovered country, and so they had to, like, finally give in and create a verb to be. What was the logic of avoiding consciously creation of the there's verb actually, to be? There's actually, there's some long story about how, like, it's consistent with the Klingon mentality that, like, there's no point in referring to, like, state of existence. Uh, okay, all right. But, hey, listen, I didn't do it. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. All right, so we've got we've got what will be Oscar qualifying yes foreign uh, language foreign films. films. All right, well, I'm gonna go back. I, I have two. I have, uh-huh. there's a third one, but I know it's on your list. Should uh-huh. we start with the one that we we revealed? So, so I actually wait. Which one did we reveal? That you revealed to me. Oh my! Oh my favorite. Yeah, you want me to stop at the top? So, well, oh, is that go oh, whatever yes. order you prefer? So, Mine so, are not rank order. So I actually think I, I mean I, I am no I have not watched every foreign film ever made, but of the foreign <laughs> films with which I am familiar, yes, by far and away the one I find the most compelling is The Lives of Others. Love that movie. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, assuming that a, not so, everyone so it's, has seen it's, it. It's a German film. Actually, three of my five are German. It's a German film. It's about surveillance by the Stasi in East Germany in 1984, and sort of the effect of surveillance on both they who are conducting the surveillance and they who are the subjects of surveillance and the relevance of like being a party favorite versus being on the outs. Yeah, I so it's it's on everybody everybody who's a surveillance law and policy nerd. We all love this film because it's such a, a fascinating deep dive into an extreme version yeah. of of the surveillance concept. I mean to me, I think it's most accurate to say it's it's not it's not a film about surveillance in in a sense that's quite what any of us in in the free world would recognize this is this is about this the is behind the iron curtain yeah this is a totalitarian surveillance system yeah. but it's got lessons as such mm-hmm. for everyone about being careful about just how much observation effect you you are willing to tolerate in your society yep. that's a great and profound lesson uh, incredible acting um the uh, incredible act. The emphasis on the impact on the the officer who's got to do the listening is a really cool. I part mean, of he's the, story. the main character, and yeah. I think and I think that's really telling. And you see, sort of, you know, the the film is it's not point of view, but it's like so heavily about him. Yeah, you really feel like you're in his head. Um, great film, completely agreed. All right, uh, your your list is longer than mine. Why don't you give me another one? Okay, so um, my. Um, Second favorite foreign language film is actually an Israeli film called Footnote. I don't know it. Tell uh, me about Footnote. So Footnote, um, 
I want to make sure I get this right. So Footnote is a is a two thousand. It's, it's, it's not called Footnote Four, is it? About it's not called products? Footnote Four. <laughs> that would be kind of funny, uh, or Footnote Twenty Three about Hong if, Kong. If if it were funny, if it was a film about Footnote Four that was funny, that'd be fantastic. That's alliterative. It is. You know there are like you know there's um uh, Jack Balkan has a great law review article that's just called Footnote Four. Oh yeah, no, it's brilliant. So um, anyway, the so the 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 film Footnote is actually about a um, philologist. Who looks at like the, who looks at like the different versions of the Talmud um, and finds like discrepancies um, and it's like he's an academic and he's like trying to figure out like you know what how, I don't know it's it's hard to describe what the movie like is specifically about but it's sort of like about like the quest for certainty and knowledge and truth is it one of these sort of like you know you can't ever really know in is it is it deconstructing the idea that by examining text we can know for sure what it is we're even studying? Yes, I think that's part of it. Or is it, or is it more the joy of the scholar who's got a puzzle and they've got to sort it out? I mean, both. I mean, hence the title, footnote, right? I mean, like you know, this is you know people who 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 whose lives are defined by I don't want to say minutia, but by specifics. <laughs> if this isn't a movie for law professors, well, I don't know what is. There's a reason why yeah, I love this movie yeah, so much. Dude. Um, all right, so my, my, my third and fourth are... Wait, let me, uh, let me throw one of mine uh, in because... Look at you. These might be on your list. So you've got several German films. I've got two Italian directors oh. as my two, all right? And uh, the first one is Roberto Benigni. Life is Beautiful. Life is Beautiful. So that's my fifth. So, that, that, so fifth? I was going to round out my list. All right, this... I, I, I appreciate why some people don't like it because of the use of humor in the context of concentration camps. Right. I totally get that. Yeah. Um, that said, it's an amazing work of art. Yep. It's an amazingly, um, Im- improbably uplifting, yes. right? Yes. Uh, to, to, to be able to pull anything uplifting out of that framing is, is incredible. It, it defeats your ex- – it, it sort of it, – it, it, you don't expect – the movie to do what it does to you. And I think that's, it's like the lives of others, right? Like it's, you know, you don't expect, especially in a foreign language film where you're processing the movie by reading subtitles for the movie to, for, for you to be really sort of not expecting your reaction to the movie. Yeah. And I think the lives of others pulls that off. I think life is beautiful. Um, uh, totally pulls that off. I'm with you on One of the, you know, without talking about it, because if, because it's quite possible listeners haven't watched life is beautiful. This won the Academy Award. And he won 98, best, 99, 97, 97. Um, 97. Well, I think it was in 98, but it was a 1997 film, gotcha. right? Uh-huh. Um, you, you, I was like, do didn't yourself Titanic, a favor. Didn't Titanic win? Oh, well, <laughs> Titanic was not a foreign language film. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, one thing that's really cool about it is that uh, Bernini, not only was he the star, but he's also the director yeah. and the co-writer, yeah. and that's an in- interesting triumvirate. That might be a good sort of trivia topic Ooh. for us to dig into. That's like egots, right? Who's won Emmys, Grammys, Oscars, and right. Tonys? This one's sort of a yeah. This is definitely a, a triple threat sort mm-hmm. of deal. So good on you, Roberto Benigni. How, pe- how are people that creative? I mean, I just I look at people who are actually creative. Wait, come on. We podcast. We we just teach, make shit up. We write. We blog. It's like a quadruple threat. All the same thing. It's all the same in different like, medium. We are we have been remarkably successful at taking the same body of knowledge and repackaging it into multiple professional. Can vectors. I give you the most concrete and very timely example of this? Please. All right. So as you know, uh, last spring Danielle Citrin, the wonderful, amazing Danielle Citrin, and I, co- and we're not just saying that because she had a nice tweet about our podcast. This oh, true. She got a T-shirt. I love that. Now Danielle is my co-author. You get a T-shirt. We, <laughs> you get a T-shirt. Um, by the way. We need ideas for the next wave of swag 
t-shirts or otherwise. Already, dude? Yeah. Right. Okay, back to my topic. Uh, Danielle and I co-authored a blog post at Lawfare about deepfakes. Deepfakes. We then expanded those ideas into a forthcoming California Law Review article about deepfakes. We then did a uh, Council on Foreign Relations issue brief about deepfakes. And this morning, the newest, uh, the January-February edition of Foreign Affairs contains our article, yay, bucket list item in Foreign Affairs in print, deepfakes. So um, they're, they're they're all unique contributions, but there's no question that we are developing the same idea and propagating it in all those different formats. That's like taken you know that's, nearly a year that's now totally the same thing as writing acting in and yes, directing exactly a, my point movie. and i expect an academy award for it um <laughs> all right so uh let's go back to your list okay so life is beautiful is number five so i still have to fill in three and four three and four are both german war movies okay um i don't know what it is about me but i just i have i i, I like german war movies so number three is a movie we have talked about on this podcast before Das Boot. Das Boot. That's a classic. And, and again, I mean, I think it meets that criteria of a foreign language film that you emote, um, even though you don't understand the language. What makes it so great for you? What, what, what is it about it that pulls out that feeling? It puts you in the submarine. <laughs> like, you know, it's in a horrifying way where you feel like you understand what it meant to be depth charged. Is that about the cinematography Yes. More so than any other element of the storytelling. Yeah, but it's so well done, and it's so like compelling, and it's you know, I, it, there's something to be said for being put in you know the position of the side that you're generally rooting against, um, right? That you know, it's like act ah, that's kind of awkward. Like, oh, you know, yeah. there are parts of U five seventy one that actually I think just rip off Das Boot. Yeah, um, Das Boot is the is the masterclass in like taut tense submarine movie. If we've proven anything on this podcast over time, is it that you love a good submarine movie? I do love it. I have not yet seen Hunter Killer. <laughs> is it, is it because, you know, height-wise, I think you would be ineligible to be, to serve oh, in a submarine? I couldn't be in the Navy. But what happened with uh, David Robinson? He grew after he enlisted. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, enlisted, matriculated to the Academy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, th- so that's my number three. Now, number four is a little controversial. So number four is a German war movie that is far more popular for the memes it has inspired than for the movie itself. <laughs> okay. um, this is Downfall, Das Untergang. Um, this is the movie about the last 10 days in Hitler's bunker. Okay. Oh, is this the one that everyone memes out yes. where Hitler's pounding Screaming the table at and the generals. people? Yeah, those are, there's something weird about doing Hitler memes. Listen, I, and so that's part of why I feel weird saying it, but like before it became a meme. Yeah, but the movie itself? The movie itself, I think, is a horrifyingly accessible um sort of overview of you know the end of a war like when you know your cause is hopeless um when you see when you literally feel the the walls closing in around you does it involve because i've not seen this the topic obviously is worthy of film is there someone put in a protagonist position or is it an observe okay so how do they do that so so it's it's one of hitler's secretaries um, who had not really spoken publicly about her involvement in Hitler's regime until very late in her life, until the late 1990s. Uh, and the movie actually begins and ends with, it, with, with live interviews. Oh. Um, not live, but like with, 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 up, with current interviews with the secretary who's now like in her late 80s, early 90s. I would think it'd be a little, notwithstanding the, the obvious sort of like element of you can in the abstract sympathize with anyone who's in this sort of hopeless situation, I would think it'd be pretty hard to muster 
extra sympathy for for even the secretary. Yeah. Nonetheless, secretary doing the involved in these horrific things. Well, and so and so what's interesting about the movie is I mean, so so the movie starts with her sort of explaining, you know, how she sort of got dragged in, and it ends with her sort of questioning, like you know, what she should have done differently. Yeah. Um, and those are sort of bookends to two hours of pretty well paced, like gripping. You know, the Soviets are coming. Yeah. And what are we going to do? The the intrigue between Himmler and Goebbels and Goering and Hitler. The you know the sort of the the demo, the the real sort of decline of Hitler's mental capacity. You know the sort of you see the difference between those close to him who see him falling apart and those close to him who just can't shake the cult of personality. Like huh. it's just it's a really I think remarkable complex but. Um, generally, I think true to history. Interesting version of the that last actually sounds days. fascinating. Yeah. I hope it ends with the satisfying, you know, crushing of everybody in that bunker at the end. Um, a lot of people die. Yep. It's like it's like Rogue One. <laughs> I hadn't expected you to say that. Well, you know, it's a war movie, right? And in war movies, you know, yeah, yeah, most yeah. of the, the the one of the characters of war movies. Yeah, except I was sad at the end of Rogue One. Yeah. I, so listen, I, you're not. I mean, you're. <sighs> You know, you know what's going to happen before you start watching the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's there's still something I can't quite put my finger. There is something compelling about the sort of psychology of the bunker. Oh, no question, no question. I'll definitely check that out. Now, this next one, I'll be curious if this is on your list. It's certainly one I'm sure you've seen. My uh, another Italian director, Gio Pontecorvo in Battle of Algiers. Indeed, uh, that's a uh, you know the bat- the Battle of Algiers, 1966 film that is. Uh, enjoyed a huge renaissance uh, uh, circa 2003-2004 as interrogation and torture became yep. uh, a huge topic of public controversy. Uh, and then famously at one point, I think it was at DOD, there was a screening for officers of Battle of Algiers because it's widely touted as illustrating the counterinsurgency lessons of how you may have hit upon a uh, torture or other course of interrogation techniques that will yield you tactically valuable information, and you may thereby inflict strategic defeat on yourself, which was the lesson a lot of people wanted others to understand at that time period. Uh, the Battle of Algiers is an amazing film. It's, it's, a, it's a, one of the uh, a paradigm of Italian neorealism. It has got uh, sort of a, uh, a style of cinematography that is in the, in the genre of, you know, like, maybe you're there. Maybe the camera's kind of wobbling a bit. And I think, if I understand this right, only one, <coughs> only one of the major actors in it was actually a professional actor that they got a huh. whole bunch of amateurs to add that verisimilitude that was characteristic of what he was doing here. Ooh, good uh, word. Yes, thank you. Uh, I did take survey of film back in the day, although this <laughs> wasn't one. Of, we, we saw the sort of more traditional uh, choices. Um, Ponte Corvo actually uh, had another film. I'll just note because I was curious what else he had done. Uh, he had a concentration camp film as well. So both my choices involved in concentration camp films, but only one of them apparently was good. Capo by Ponte Corvo was uh, nominated in the U.S. for an Academy Award. But uh, the poking around I did suggested that it's not the most critically acclaimed film. A little bit melodramatic, as you might expect. Indeed. Um, all right. So that, a lot I, of... I, I, what's I feel, your, what's I feel your, like we just crushed that a little bit. Do you have any others or was... I had five. That was five? five? That yeah. was five. Okay. Um, I think a lot of ours had, you know, obviously war and national security Indeed. themes well, showing shock, our interest. Do you think, I mean, being self-reflective. I'll, I'll, I'll throw out an honorable mention to Itu Mama Tambien. Oh, okay. There you go. No, no real national security no, uh, just, angle on that. No, just, just fun. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. All right. Um, you, you have any others? 
No, because I actually, you know, I don't know a ton about film. I'm just oh, to I do have one other. I'm sorry. So this is this is way out of left field. But speaking of war and national security, um, I watched um, a, a Swedish movie over the summer that I was really impressed by. Um, it's called The King's Choice. Okay. Um, and it's basically the story of, I think it's King Haakon, um, and basically his the, the dilemma he was faced with um, at the outset of World War II when the Nazis, you know, started oh, uh, pushing towards yeah, Scandinavia, yeah. and how he basically tried to both protect the idea of a Swedish national identity, while recognizing that the Swedish military was never going to be able to stand up to the Nazis. So um, he didn't want to get it. He, I don't actually. I confess, I don't actually know what happened. Whether they were able to maintain a neutral posture, so or whether the, they got occupied, or what the, happened. It was occupied, and, and there was a government in exile. Um, and and part of the whole sort of. The movie is like the flight of the government, first within Sweden, and ultimately the choice. Oh, that to, sounds great! Yeah, yeah, no. So it's actually. I mean, I was I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed this movie. And I yeah. thought it was really excellent. Well, I think we're we're revealing a lot about ourselves insofar as yes. a lot of what we're talking about, but also we're revealing a lot about the the film industry too. Perhaps uh, the drama inherent in World War II, uh, which is which I think is driven in part because of magnitude, in part because of the sweeping historic impact, in part because of the sense that there was comparative to a lot of armed conflict. Uh, more of a Manichaean quality where you knew who yep. the bad guys were. Manichaean, look at, look at you. Hey, I'm a, I'm a law professor. I know some big words. Really, I've used them all. I don't. I'm out. You know, Benini in his Oscar acceptance speech, he, he won a couple of Oscars that night. Yeah. And when he, he won the first one and gave this big speech in English, he gets up there with the second one. He says, I made a mistake. I've used all my English. <laughs> I have made a mistake. I've used all my big words. There you go. I think that's, a, that's, that's maybe a good place to stop. Other than to point out that you and I have pretty morbid, uh, uh, t- morbid, Morbid. Morbid. I don't know yeah. what morbid means. Morbid. Taste. You have words and I have bronchitis. Um, <laughs> uh, morbid taste in movies. We like drama and we're interested in national security. That's why we do what we do and uh, dramatization of it. Of course, that's what we're drawn to. So, hey, Hollywood. More of these. <laughs> Indeed. I'm, well, listen, I mean, uh, the Australians made a movie about like the Tokyo war crimes trial and I was so excited and it was so bad. Oh, bummer. And then, like we, the Americans made a movie about like MacArthur's role in the Tokyo and the Japanese sort of recovery, and t- and they got Tommy Lee Jones to play MacArthur, and I was so excited, and it so was so bad. bad. Oh. <laughs> so actually, I mean, part of what I think we're seeing here is that there are contexts in which I think non Hollywood movies about these episodes might and actually, incidents, yeah, sometimes might be better. Makes makes sense. Um, all right. Well, on that controversial note, uh, I am at Steve underscore Vladek. He is at underscore. Wait, you are at Bobby Chesney. See, I have to get off the cold medicine. Um, <laughs> we will be back next week. Although after that, we might take a bit of a holiday break, depending upon how things develop. Uh, you can follow us at NSL Podcast. As always, we love hearing from you. So if you have suggestions for frivolity, like the one uh, listener who sent us the suggestion we used today, send them to us. Otherwise, stay safe out there. Adios.